This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. Ingenuity for life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On November 8th, eBay CEO Devin Wenig, three of President Trump's key technology policy advisors, and Silicon Valley Congressman Ro Khanna joined other policymakers and experts live at the Washington Post to discuss the promise of new technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and 3D printing. In this segment, Congressman Ro Khanna of California, DARPA's Valerie Browning, and executives from 3D printing company Formlabs and quantum computing firm IonQ discuss opportunities and challenges that these new technologies face on the marketplace in a climate of regulatory uncertainty. Let's listen. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm Kat Zakreski, and I'm the anchor of the upcoming Tech 202 newsletter here at The Post. And we've got a great panel. Um, so I'd like to welcome them all. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, so we'll start with um, Jung Sung Kim, and he's the co-founder and chief strategy officer at IonQ, a quantum computing firm. We also have David Lakatosh, chief product officer at the 3D printing company Formlabs. We have Valerie Browning, director of the Defense Sciences Offices at DARPA, and Congressman Ro Khanna, a Democrat from California who represents Silicon Valley. Um, and just before we get started with our conversation today, I wanted to remind you all to tweet any questions that you might have with the hashtag 202Live. So just to kick things off, since we're coming right off the midterm elections, Congressman, um, it's been a big week for the Democrats here in DC. Could you tell us a little bit about what some of the priorities might be for Democrats on tech policy now that you have control of the House again? Sure, well, it's an honor to be on the panel. Uh, I'm uh, surprised you start with the politician as opposed to the technologist, but I'm happy to uh, answer uh, the question. I think there are three things we need to do. One, we need to uh, make sure every person in the nation has access to the internet. There's still so many Americans who don't have access to high-speed internet. China has almost 54% fiber high-speed internet. We have about 3% fiber. Uh, for about $80 billion, you could hook up most of America to, to high-speed internet. Uh, second, uh, I think there's going to be, again, uh, issues around net neutrality and uh, getting back to Tom Wheeler's uh, order uh, and not Ajit Pai's reversal on net neutrality. Uh, third, there's going to be a discussion on privacy to make sure that I had proposed an Internet Bill of Rights, but to make sure that people's uh, data is protected online uh, and that they have uh, opportunities uh, to express themselves and equal access online. And finally, uh, I would say uh, there will be a focus on uh, the new types of jobs that are going to take place. I mean, I know this panel is partly about artificial intelligence. It's going to create extraordinary opportunities. When you think about automatic landing systems in planes, I'm very glad we have them. It's led to a lot less crashes, but it's changed the nature of work. And we need to think about uh, what, is the, what are the new opportunities that are going to come about and how do we prepare people for a digital age. 
And so on that point of the new opportunities that might come up, I want to turn it over to some of our representatives from the industry. Um, and so Jung Sung, maybe could you talk to us a little bit about what's happening with quantum computing in Washington right now and what conversations are looking like with lawmakers on that issue? Absolutely. Uh, so quantum computing is a very nascent, nascent industry you know, in the sense that it was very much uh, embedded in the R&D community for the last couple of decades. And only in the last uh, maybe three or four years, people have started to uh, convince themselves that we may be able to build a machine that will be able to help uh, solve some of the very difficult problems, uh, mathematical and scientific problems we face today. Um, and the uh, growth uh, and fruition of this industry really depends on uh, the, the attraction and training of talent um, that continues to fuel uh, the progress. It is a, still remains a very challenging problem, although it's an extremely promising uh, industry. Uh, so how do we work together between the industry that's uh, just budding uh, with uh, academic institutions, national laboratories? Um, how do we all work together to create a positive uh, environment to attract and continue to uh, fuel this industry? I think that will be a, the biggest challenge and opportunity. At the same and so I'm just curious on, your, from your perspective, there's a lot of criticism in Silicon Valley about the level of um, understanding of technology issues in Congress and um, in other regulatory agencies. How, um, how much effort do you see lawmakers making to understand quantum computing right now? Oh, um, you know, I think quantum computing is a very tricky um, technological base. I mean, it only took me about 15 years to really appreciate what it can, what it does. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, when we when we program and use computers uh, today, we don't have to understand how the semiconductor electrons in, in transistors uh, operate. It, we have to understand its implications, opportunities, and then how do we actually make sure that we have the talent and, and the industry support to, to get it going. Uh, so in that sense, I think the, uh, there has been a, a tremendous amount of reception from, from the Hill and also from the administration, past and, per, and current, uh, to recognize the importance and potential of the industry to make an effort to, uh, to support. And so Valerie, I just wanted to ask you, you know, in, with some of the tech hearings we've had this year, people in Washington get a rep for not understanding how some of the, these platforms work, but actually DARPA has done so much of the work on innovation that we see um, coming out of the, the tech sector. And, and so I just wanted to ask you, what are some of DARPA's priorities right now when it comes to technology? Sure, so, so DARPA's portfolio right now is addressing sort of four core mission areas. Uh, first is to defend the homeland. So we're looking there at uh, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass terror, technologies defend against that, technologies defend against cyber defense. There's um, deter and prevail against uh, peer adversaries. So there we're looking to leverage complexity and uh, new technologies to surprise the adversary, our peer adversaries across uh, multiple domains um, that have expanded to include space and cyber. Uh, in, in addition to land, sea, and air. Uh, and then there's uh, effect, technologies to allow us to effectively uh, prosecute stabilization, stabilization efforts. So uh, technologies that allow us to do peacekeeping and other missions in complex urban environments uh, against uh, gray, uh, hybrid warfare and gray zone tactics, those sorts of things. And then the, the final mission area is foundational R&D that supports all of these mission areas in a broad spectrum of technologies that includes artificial intelligence, um, quantum, sensing, simulation, computation, new mathematics, 
uh, new materials and manufacturing, um, new, new approaches to design, new computational approaches. So that those are sort of our four uh, core um, areas that, that our, our portfolio across the agency are organized against. And so you mentioned AI. Could you tell us a little bit about the $2 billion next AI initiative that DARPA sure. has launched and how that will be allocated? So DARPA is actually celebrating its uh, 60th year of existence uh, this year. And uh, two months ago at our uh, conference to celebrate that achievement, our, our director announced our AI Next campaign, which is a $2 billion commitment over the next five years to invest in uh, advancing uh, the state of AI technology. Uh, we have been investing in AI since the inception of the field, almost the entire time of our existence. And we have laid, over the, over the course of, our, of the existence of that, those investments, we have laid foundations for a number of technologies that uh, we're all familiar with today, uh, Siri, uh, um, driverless vehicles. And our, the, the intent with this new announcement is uh, to continue to, bu to build on what is already a very robust portfolio. We have over, right now, 80 programs that are either looking to advance the state of AI or leverage AI in, in a broad uh, range of technologies. So we're going to look to, to supplement that uh, in a way that really takes us to the, what we consider the third wave or next generation of AI technologies, which will really transform, uh, we believe, uh, machines from being tools to more collaborative partners to augment human performance. And how much does DARPA collaborate with private sector technology companies on its AI work? Uh, we collaborate where it makes sense to do so. We certainly have ongoing conversations and engagements uh, with, the, with the industry. In, in many cases, however, we have uh, performance requirements that are different from what the, the, the industry, uh, the, you know, the um, Facebooks and the Googles and the Amazons and other, tech, uh, other uh, industry, large industry investments are targeting. So where, where we need to make investments are in uh, areas where we can uh, advance the technology so that it is more robust, reliable, uh, trusted for DOD specific and national security uh, areas. And David, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what your perspective is on Washington as you know, an executive at a 3D printing company. Um, so you mentioned backstage that this is your first time in DC, right? That's right. And so I just wanted to hear, maybe could you tell us a little bit about what your company does and how you think about the regulatory environment as sure. part of your strategy? Absolutely. So we are a 3D printing company uh, aimed to help professionals, whether that's a small, medium, large size business, uh, or other professionals like dental professionals or in the medical industry, people who need to print uh, for their professional life. Um, we started out of MIT about seven or eight years ago, and the goal was always to uh, serve this purpose, make a machine that is accessible, easy to use. Uh, so we use a technology called uh, sterolithography. It's a laser-based technology. It allows us to use a lot of different type of materials. We have 15 to 20 plastics today, also ceramic material that people can print with. Um, it's been a really fun ride. We've, uh, we are now uh, the big, one of the biggest professional companies. We've sold about 40,000 printers, just to give you a little bit of, of scale. 
Um, and today we are really working on pushing the boundaries on materials and applications. I think a lot of the uh, uh, conversation today about 3D printing is uh, how can we really increase the scope it's very, I think it's very obvious to everybody that 3D printing is going to have a major impact in a lot of different sectors of industry. Um, some people think also in the in kind of the personal uh, space where we're not really directly working on that, but uh, undoubtedly that's, that potentially will come at one point as well. Uh, whether that's something that you can buy from Amazon or, or, uh, or something like that, that's, that's really interesting, downloading files, etc. cetera. Uh, we are right now really in the phase of, of scaling up our technology. And part of that is I think starting to impact uh, when it comes to Washington and policy making uh, more and more circles because uh, people have questions about uh, you know, how safe it is, how, how wide ranging the technology can be. And um, we, we want to be part of that conversation. We are really uh, working with almost every part of industry. Um, today a lot of the conversation, I think there was a, a video just before about 3D printed guns. Um, uh, one one story that I, uh, we addressed this a few times, so I thought about another way to kind of think about it, which is that um, really you can you can use uh, this is from a professor at MIT actually that uh, you can use really both a gun and a, a shovel to uh, you know obviously hurt somebody, uh, but only one of them is great to dig a hole. And I think a really a really important part of 3D printing is that it's super versatile and. Um, very similarly to some other uh, technologies that are allowing people to manipulate digital files, um, the question is where should you regulate that? And that's, that's a lot of the conversation where, where it is today. That makes sense. And Congressman, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because you do represent the Silicon Valley area. Um, you know, when we see new technologies such as 3D printing um, and learn about some of their applications, there's sometimes a, a knee-jerk reaction to regulate. I mean, uh, can you walk me through just kind of how you think about um, meeting with representatives from companies that are working on tech in these emerging spaces? Well, I think it has to be a thoughtful, balanced approach, whether it's 3D printing or artificial intelligence or quantum computing, which is going to make it uh, possible. And while I don't understand all the details of quantum computing, I, don't, I think we have to demystify some of these things. I mean, all artificial intelligence is, is you have large sets of data and you're trying to find a pattern. And we need sophisticated computers to do it because you have a large set of data and ordinary computers can't do that. And so quantum computing, which has a lot of science to it that I don't understand, basically makes it possible to do these large calculations. And we need to understand why there a lot of this is good. I mean, it's good that we have 3D printing in America that's going to give us a manufacturing advantage so then more manufacturing can come here. It's good that we have artificial intelligence in many applications. Uh, if we do have some form of driverless cars, that could lessen fatalities in this country dramatically. It could allow us to diagnose diseases in ways that weren't possible because we could look at mass numbers of uh, information. But there is a, obviously possibilities of abuse. For example, when you're looking at large amounts of data, uh, do, do we consider a person's race or gender? Uh, and probably we don't want to do that. And that raises questions of human values. Or what is the use of uh, artificial intelligence? I mean, there was a famous controversy recently with Google and the Department of Defense, where some of the employees said, well, we don't want to make, we don't want this technology to make drone strikes more effective at going against terrorists because 
civilians are killed. And the counter-argument was, well, drone strikes are going to be happening right now anyway, and maybe this will diminish uh, the uh, civilian casualties. So the point is, by and large, I think technology is going to advance uh, our nation, our world, but we have to think deeply about the values, and that's where the regulation comes in, to make sure that uh, we're regulating it in a way that's advancing our democratic values. And Valerie, I wanted to ask you about one of the points that the congressman just made around Google employees and concerns about, you know, being working on technology that would be used for defense purposes. How um, has DARPA dealt with that issue, particularly as you look to attract talent, especially as you know some leading tech figures like Elon Musk are warning people about the dangers of using AI for warfare? Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll first just point out that by directive. Uh, autonomy and AI cannot be used without human intervention, okay, for lethal uh, engagements. Um, I, I guess my response would be that uh, we can respect Google's decision. Uh, it doesn't have to hamper us in terms of moving forward. We, um, we, we have innovated for 60 years in, in AI. Uh, the the early technology, uh, again, DARPA laid some very fundamental uh, groundwork in the first, what we call the first wave of rules-based, and then the second wave, what Congressman was just talking about, the machine learning-enabled AI, and where we're going now in terms of, again, trying to invest in technologies that will take AI from this machine learning, which simply is looking for pattern recognition in data, to actually being, uh, again, a collaborative partner in, uh, in, in um, many uh, uh, human-machine type of collaborative environments. And we don't, uh, we don't see that we uh, are having problems engaging industry uh, in, in that partnership. Uh, the, the Google uh, decision has not hampered DARPA's efforts to invest in the fundamental advancement of AI technology. So we're, we're seeing in our uh, as we were rolling out this AI Next campaign, a very good, solid response from the academic and as well uh, uh, nonprofit and small and, and large company participation. There's a there's there's definitely enthusiasm for what we're trying to do, and and we're finding good partnerships in that endeavor. And Congressman, many Google employees live in in your district. I mean, how do you think about these protests that we've seen um, when it comes to working with the government on on defense issues? Well, we're a democracy. We're not like China. I mean, China basically uh, says they run their companies. It's state-owned. They don't care about civil liberties. They just appropriate people's data. They do whatever they want with the technology. I don't think we want to be like China. We uh, have a system where we have uh, free enterprise and companies have the autonomy uh, to decide what they want to do. Uh, DARPA has done a tremendous amount to launch Silicon Valley. I mean, if it weren't for DARPA, you probably wouldn't have had the mouse, and you may never have had uh, Apple computers. So uh, there is symb a symbiotic relationship between DARPA and, uh, and tech companies, and you have the Defense Innovation Board and DIUX that is looking at how do we foster that relationship and make it closer. Uh, but I don't think we can force any company to do something they don't want. That's it. I think what we have to do is address their concerns. So. If, if, if Google comes out and says, well, we just don't want to collaborate on artificial intelligence uh, with defense, I, I don't think that 
uh, is a tenable position given the threats we face uh, from other nations. But if they say, look, we want to be assured that there's some ethical principles and standards that are developed and uh, we want to be part of that in collaboration with defense, then I think that's something that we should we should work on. And my sense is more in the latter, that it's not a reflexive uh, position that they don't want to cooperate with defense. Uh, Eric Schmidt, who chairs the Defense Innovation Board, was at Google. Uh, it's more that they want to see uh, what are the ethical principles that are going to guide this. And you just mentioned how DARPA funding has launched many technologies that we see in private industry. Jung Sung, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done with DARPA and how that spurred the work that you're doing now with your company? Absolutely. So um, I think the uh, if you look at the history of technologies that impact our lives today, um, they can come from different places. And I think historically in our country, it has uh, been uh, a, a large portion of that actually started out in the def defense needs. For example, uh, the first uh, invention of digital computers that we use in our pocketbooks, uh, in our pockets every day, um, that was all uh, driven, the technology was initially driven by the needs of the defense industry. Um, if you think about the internet, um, those were funded by uh, ARPA and other places. Um, just a different way to look at how we communicate. And, and these technologies were initially, they have a, a specific goal. Um, but sometimes the development of industry is very different. Uh, de development of technology can actually have a much um, uh, reaching impacts. And uh, when, when computers were built, people came and started to use that to solve their problems. Um, and, then, and then that spurred more, more needs. A similar thing has happened in quantum uh, technology. So it was uh, a very exotic area of physics. I mean, it's fundamental in the sense that uh, you know, people say that the difference between quantum computer and, and a traditional computer, even if it's a supercomputer, is fundamentally bigger um, than the difference between a supercomputer and an abacus, um, just the way we represent information and so on. And that opens up a tremendous amount of opportunities, but in the early days, how we garner that, that kind of physical principles to do meaningful information processing um, has largely been an open question. And it's an open question of both uh, scientific research and also technological um, development that we had to do to, to make it useful. Um, so the efforts at DARPA and, and similar efforts at IARPA and so on are very targeted towards, you know, how do we garner this technology and demonstrate something that actually can lead to more meaningful, uh, what are the next steps that are needed to get, get them to meaningful applications? Uh, and those were largely driven by government investments uh, over the last couple of decades. Um, and only in the last maybe five years, as I said earlier, people have built enough confidence. Maybe the, the, commerce, the private sector has now seen, if they can do that, maybe with an additional effort, a focused effort like this, maybe we'd be able to hit this target or that target. So um, I think the, uh, the symbiotic relation that, professor, uh, that, that Congressman uh, Kana mentioned is um, there, there is the, the need for pushing the technology forward and, and broad base of knowledge that we have to develop, which is academics and government can, can work together towards that. And then out of that, the private sector can, uh, can capitalize on specific opportunities and actually try to make those happen. They will make their bets, take their risk, and, and manage those to, to try to make things happen. And I think we're at, right at that transition, which is uh, a very exciting time to be. And so we've talked about a lot of the positive things about the relationship between Silicon Valley and 
um, the end of Washington today, as well as you know some of the problems too. And um, I think the narrative that we see a lot of attention on these days is about that tension, and um, you know people even sometimes use the word tech clash. So I wanted to maybe um, close by doing kind of a rapid fire session right now with our panelists. If you could all each say maybe one thing that you think would improve the relationship between the tech industry and DC um, regulators and agencies. We need more basic technology and competence amongst policymakers. I think we need to manage expectations and uh, have better communications between uh, the industry and the policymakers so that we understand what we really need to think about as we develop new regulatory um, concepts. I think going back to what Congressman said, I think hands-on experience, really not just, I think you can understand it from a textbook, but also a lot of this comes with three different things, very tangible, um, working with the technology uh, in some sort of application setting is very important, so there is a very holistic understanding of technology, not just a kind of surface. Um, the technology, advanced technology can be used for a lot of good things, and it could also be used for a lot of bad things. Um, and as people develop technologies, I think there are ethical questions that always comes up, and those are the conversations I think we have to have with the reg regulatory body so that we could actually use it for more good um, than, than, not, than not good. Got it. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much to our panelists for being here today, and thank you all for joining us today for this first technology event. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.